Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey everyone, Nadia Sirota here. Just a little word before we get started. Today's show is actually a collaboration between Meet the Composer and the Chamber Orchestra Alarmal Sound. And so the show actually exists in three different formats. As a podcast, well, this podcast that you're listening to right now, as a CD, which will be released very soon on Cantaloupe Records, and as a live performance, which Alarmal Sound is touring over the next couple seasons. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear more of it, you can check out Alarmal Sound on their website, alarmalsound.com. This is Meet the Composer. Okay. Today's show is about two pieces by composer John Adams, which are both called Chamber Symphony. Or actually, one of them is called Chamber Symphony, and the other is called Son of Chamber Symphony. To help me tell this story, I'm enlisting a very good friend. Hey, everyone. That's Alan Pearson, Alarmal Sound's conductor and artistic director. This is music that's really part of our DNA as an ensemble. When we play these pieces... We're not just thinking about notes and rhythms. We're thinking about Ren and Stimpy, 1930s Hollywood, in and out Burger, and Beethoven. In addition to the two of us, you're going to be hearing from a couple of key players, the music historian Walter Frisch. Professor of music at Columbia University, where I teach music history. And, very importantly, the composer, John Adams. I'm John Adams. I live in Berkeley, California. Right, so let's talk about John Adams' chamber symphony. Actually, let's back up a couple steps here. Before we dive into John Adams and the Chamber Symphony, we need some info about why he wrote the piece in the first place. And for that, we have to travel back. Back to a composer who had a huge influence on John and a huge influence on this piece. Let's talk about the Austrian composer born in 1874, the dude who single-handedly emancipated the dissonance. Well, not really, but kind of. Anyway, let's talk about Arnold Schoenberg. Schoenberg was a serious heavy hitter in the Vienna of the early 20th century. The Vienna of Mahler and Strauss and Freud and Klimt. Just an ultra, ultra ripe intellectual and artistic ferment. But then the whole world fell apart. Well, what's going on in the world, and particularly in Schoenberg's world, is the uh, coming to power of Adolf Hitler in Germany in 1933. And that was the immediately precipitating factor for Schoenberg to leave. He had to leave. So Schoenberg's forced to move to the United States and was, like, dropped into this completely different culture. In Hollywood, you know, where there were a lot of European refugees, particularly Jewish refugees from Central Europe. And so Schoenberg was kind of a fish out of water in California. Adams talks about that as a kind of inspiration for the piece, this idea of, you know, Schoenberg, this very serious, dramatic composer, living in this very, like, commercial, kind of gaudy and maybe tacky environment where the only thing that mattered was the dollar, you know, whether something sold or not. And Schoenberg having to survive in that crass, wacky American environment. It was a major cultural disconnect, for sure. 
but it wasn't all bad. Actually, one of his first letters early from there, he was absolutely struck by the landscape. He, he thought it was, you know, aspects of the Austrian Alps and the French Riviera, everything rolled into one, and he thought it was really beautiful. So, I mean, I'm just even picturing, you know, Vienna. Right. What Vienna looks like in my head. Right. And what um, Los Angeles looks like in my head. These are literally two completely different, like, Instagram filters. (laughs) You know what I mean? One is, like, bright, sunny, full of, like, blonde-haired people and, like, sunshine and sunglasses and, like, stars. And for for some reason, this image of Schoenberg playing tennis or something. There's a great picture of Schoenberg playing tennis in L.A. The famous picture of George Gershwin and Arnold Schoenberg with tennis rackets. He was an avid tennis player. Um, He liked to go out on drives around Hollywood. And he had lots of friends in the entertainment industry, Um, he lived in a pretty nice neighborhood on North Rockingham Avenue, in the same street that Shirley Temple and Cole Porter lived on. So what does all this Schoenberg have to do with John Adams' Chamber Symphony? There's all kinds of strange marriages of unlikely partners that this Chamber Symphony represents. You know, Adams is a composer who I think enjoys in really beautiful, tasteful ways flirting with tastelessness. I enjoy that kind of delicious irony of sort of crass American commercialism, cheek by jowl with very deep, profound, serious European high culture. So the story goes... Right, well, the story that Adams tells is that he had just finished writing Death of Klinghoffer. Which is, you know, really serious. I mean, really serious, you know, it's about terrorism. Had to go to very dark places. Um, And it was really controversial. I began to go back and listen to darker European music. Pieces by late Romantic Germanic composers, such as Arnold Schoenberg. You can really hear that dark, chromatic influence in Klinghoffer. But at the same time... Adams is one of the few composers of, like, his generation, I think, that has a real sense of humor that comes out in his music. Um, And he likes to juxtapose really serious pieces with what he calls trickster pieces, pieces that are light and funny and have a sense of humor to them. But there's a distress call on your Tostometron communicator. Will evil never rest? I hope not. Calling powder toast man. Leave everything to me. The story, as he tells, is that he was sitting in his studio studying Schoenberg's Opus 9, which he was going to conduct sometime soon. And... In the next room, his son Sam was watching cartoons. I think it was Ren and Stimpy. That was his favorite, which was really a scandalous cartoon show. What Adams was hearing through the door was this music, which is, like Schoenberg, really like caffeinated, wild, frenetic. And I made this connection in my head between the music of the great cartoons, you know, Roadrunner and Bugs Bunny. And, and, you know, Ren and Stimpy used a lot of the music from those 50s cartoons. These characters that are always right on the edge of getting squashed by a thousand-ton boulder or 
lighting a cigar that has a dynamite stick in the end of it. There's always some insane to the max visual proposition. And so, you know, Adams had this aha moment. That kind of wacky, wild energy reminded me of the Schoenberg. This sort of familiarity, this family resemblance between this crazy Schoenberg piece and this crazy cartoon music. The Schoenberg doesn't have much humor to it, but it has this kind of wonderfully aerobic, bounding energy. The Schoenberg Chamber Symphony was one of the first, like, major pieces for the one-on-a-part instrumentation. So, you know, rather than have, you know, 12 violin players playing the same part, you have a single person on each part. And Alarm Will Sound is a group that is built to play that music. That's what we do. So it seems like there might be some um, inherent problems in shifting that dynamic, right? Because, like, uh, right. The, the winds and the brass must project better than strings. Yes, right. I think that's probably true. The Chamber Symphony is a ferociously hard piece to balance. You know, the whole concept of the Chamber Symphony is wrong. And I can tell you that from experience, because I've written two of them, and they're impossible propositions. A violin is not as loud as a French horn. It just isn't. Um, and when you have a piece that has, you know, one viola and two French horns, that, that's just a, it's a problem. The violin simply acoustically can't match, you know, a drum set or, or two French horns. It's a piece where the sort of default performance, unless you balance, 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 is a cacophony of sound. The result is you, you get this strange acoustical picture. It's just the issue of, of physics. And I feel like the best performances of the Chamber Symphony are ones where the conductor becomes a kind of curator saying, OK, I want to hear that here. And like that other stuff is really great. But sorry, we're just not going to hear that. So what Alan is saying? Let's try the whole time the section. Let's always emphasize long notes. But then come to the foreground in 45. So you have a climax on And then it's 46. Why don't you come back for your climax going? But that's coming down to your double 46. Which can be now in the oboe, viola, cello moment. Is John Adams' chamber symphony requires a whole lot of rehearsal. So one, two, three. So the first movement starts out, Adams like talks about it as being like a kid banging on a tin can, um, but it's, you know, in this case, Chris Thompson playing a cowbell. And that's the pulse that the whole piece is based around. And then, you know, out of that comes this mad frenetic chaos of contrapuntal lines. And like in the Schoenberg, but even more so, there's so much happening at once. And Adams says that one of his inspirations for this was being at a kid's birthday party and seeing like all of these kids just doing crazy shit and trying to, like, grab people's attention. And the piece has that kind of quality to it. Like, there are all these competing solo lines, each sort of more frenetic than the last. It's a much edgier and and sort of jittery Mm. experience. I mean, you wrote incredibly virtuosic music, and I, I, I just read your, your program note for the Chamber Symphony, which was that you were going to name the first movement um, Discipline et Punir, <laughs> um, which is, you know, punishment and discipline. Um, can, you, can you unpack that sentiment a little bit? Well, I think I was just, you know, on the one hand, being trying to be funny, and the other, 
probably sheepishly apologizing for the difficulty of it. He named the first movement of Chamber Symphony Mongrel Airs, which is a reference to a critic, a, a British critic, who criticized Adams's music as not having breeding. <laughs> Which was wonderful um, because, you know, mongrels are the smartest dogs. Mm. So I just called it that for the fun of it. But sometimes, you know, I can't even remember the reason. I have a piece called China Gates. I cannot remember why I called it that. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't put too much into it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, Adam's sense of humor is definitely of that sort of nose-thumbing quality. Okay, so the first movement is totally nuts and really, really hard. But the piece does have a sensitive side. The second movement even starts out kind of slow, although that doesn't really last for too long. There's a melody, a sort of almost like a Martin Luther hymn, first intoned by the trombone. Basically, all the trombone player plays in the second movement is that melody, which he does four times. And meanwhile, there is a very slowly boom, 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 boom. Just very steady, uh, plodding ground bass. But then over it... Taken over by the trumpet and... Uh, increasing density of crazy stuff happens. They sort of change roles. What's way down deep in the bass suddenly at one point is way high up in the piccolo. So other voices come in that seem to have nothing to do with what the drone player is doing, but that try to like take the movement off in its own direction. And the uh, melody gets kind of put into a trash compactor at one point, and then it gets twisted and contorted as if it were in a carnival hall of mirrors. And so like in the first movement, there's this kind of kaleidoscope of crazy musical ideas that gets thrown on top of that trombone solo. The things that I did with this material, I did with the software. I have a composing program that has, was essentially made for television composing where, you know, you suddenly have to stretch something an extra three seconds or squeeze it. And I took those algorithms and, you know, pushed them to the max. Uh, it, it ended up making for very interesting uh, uh, musical transformations. I can't think of a more evocative title for a movement than Roadrunner. Maybe it's a function of the hours I spent when my brain was maximally porous, watching Looney Tunes and eating sandwich bags of Cheerios. But there's something so fundamentally American about a kid up way before her parents on a Saturday morning, passively observing the gleefully sadistic acts of cartoon characters. So the third movement is the most explicitly cartoony movement. It's crazy fast. There are all these different musical ideas that just get piled on top of each other. A real, like, kaleidoscope of styles. Um, at one point, there's this hoedown that happens for, you know, no apparent reason, but it's awesome. And it's, it's like the violin and the viola and the synthesizer and uh, 
the percussion playing tambourine offbeats, and it's this like sudden hoedown, and it's so much fun. And then the third movement eventually breaks into a violin solo. And so in really all the movements, there's this sort of competition of musical ideas among all the players. And the third movement is the first time that it seems like someone wins. And basically everyone else shuts up. And the violin player, who had a solo in the first movement too, gets her moment in the third movement to do something completely on her own. And then that kind of winds down. And then the opening bass line comes back. Um, but where it was like short and sprightly and fast at the beginning of the movement, when it comes back now, it's like super heavy and lugubrious. Um, and it's these big, like fat notes with a contrabassoon. Um, it's a great sound. The synthesizer and the contrabassoon and the low strings. Uh, and then that gradually like chugs back up to speed faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Then we have this big finish, and the piece ends with a quote, the only actual quote in the piece from the original Chamber Symphony. We believe that to discover a new artist, to hear a new piece of music can be a transformative experience. We strive to create these experiences by sharing the music of those who make sense of our world differently, through sound. With our 24-7 music stream, connect to an international audience united by a passion for discovery. Find us online at q2music.org. Splitting Atoms, the new podcast album from Meet the Composer and Alarm Will Sound, is available April 21st. You can hear Alarm Will Sound's performance of the third movement of John Adams' Son of Chamber Symphony now. Pre-order now on iTunes or Bandcamp and get an instant download straight to your mobile phone or handheld device. So, John Adams' Chamber Symphony, as we just established... It's a piece that predated us, and we love the piece. In fact, it's one of the pieces that contributed to our forming an ensemble like this in the first place, a group with single strings and a full complement of winds, brass, and percussion. Now the next piece, Son of Chamber Symphony, that one's ours. It was written expressly for Alarmable Sound after John heard us playing the Chamber Symphony. And so not only do we love to play Son of Chamber Symphony, there's something of us, for better or for worse, kind of baked into the piece. Every time I play that duet, I can smell In-N-Out Burger. Because I'll never forget that we went to In-N-Out the day of the premiere, and Caleb and I were in the dressing room, and we just reeked 
And <laughs> <laughs> we played that duet. This is, you know, in the time between the dress and the concert. Like, that was the last shot to get it right, you know, before the premiere. And, and we just went over it and went over it. So every time I play that duet, I can smell that In-N-Out Burger <laughs> smell. It's really amazing. The voice you just heard was our cellist, Stefan Freund. And actually, you're going to hear from a lot of AWS members whom I'm not going to bother introducing because it gets kind of confusing, along with our friends from before. Okay. The composer. I'm John Adams. And our conductor and artistic director, Alan Pearson. So let's talk about Son of Chamber Symphony. Okay. So why is it called Son of Chamber Symphony? Right. So I, you know, when John first mentioned Son of Chamber Symphony, I really thought it was a joke. The first time I heard the phrase was in an email from John with the subject header, Son of Chamber Symphony, and the entire body of the email was a photo that he took of himself, his face, with a Pee Wee Herman doll next to it. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that was the first time I ever heard the phrase Son of Chamber Symphony in my life. So with, like, that origin story, of course I thought it was a joke. He wasn't really going to call this piece Son of Chamber Symphony. Much to the horror of my publisher, I told him I didn't want to call it Chamber Symphony Number no. 2, which I thought would be bad luck anyway, because Schoenberg never finished his. <laughs> so I said, let's call it Son of Chamber Symphony, which they didn't go for. But um, anyway, that's what it's called. <laughs> it's a reference to pulp horror films of the 50s and 60s and 70s. So, you know, like Bride of Frankenstein. Of course, you know, it's also referring to his first Chamber Symphony, which by the time he wrote this piece for us in 2007, had become a classic. So, uh, right, so John did this thing where he said, um, hey, can I conduct the first rehearsal? Which is really weird, right? So, See, I, I will say from my perspective of, of like a new music player, I never, ever, ever want the composer <laughs> at the first rehearsal. Totally. Like, it's the worst. It is the worst. To me, that's totally. like a total shame, personal cone totally. of shame, like hide away, don't, don't be here uh, moment. Right. Memo to composers, don't come to first rehearsals. And certainly don't change the piece based on how much we suck at a first rehearsal. Because we often suck at first rehearsal. Deeply. <laughs> deeply, deeply. <laughs> 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 so John conducted the first rehearsal, and I was, a, I was a little put off by that at first, I'll admit it. Well. <laughs> but his reason for doing it was that you know, he was really nervous about what he had written. Very complex. Especially in the first movement, which I know he has spent a huge amount of time on, and which is really difficult. You can probably hear that. It's pretty complicated. Very difficult. This piece is really it's pretty hard. Challenging. A lot of interlocking parts, a lot of stuff yeah. going on. There are a lot of licks to learn. And we had to read it with John Adams. Oh, my response was panic. And we had just received these parts like that day or something. Which was rather terrifying. It was really a short time before the first rehearsal. We didn't seem to have enough rehearsal time, of course. Very late in the process. Like, really last minute. Frantically trying to learn our parts. (laughs) It was pretty quick. And then, when any composer shows up to the first rehearsal, it's a little bit, like, (laughs) you know, it's super stressful. And so as he was conducting, he was making changes. 
I remember the person who got the brunt of that was Beth Stimper. Hi, I'm Beth. Who had a bass clarinet part, a letter D. Letter D, the ensemble's favorite section. I remember it because we rehearsed it About to death. About six so billion times. times. we rehearsed that yeah, passage. so many times. So many times. A million times. And then I turn the page after that panicked page turn, I'm like, what am I, I don't, what do we do, you know? <laughs> That's it, you remember it. <laughs> I think when I'm playing this, I'm just really focused on not screwing it up. Just like that. <laughs> it's hard to enjoy it. So Beth had a really hard bass clarinet part in that originally. And it was very uncomfortable for a while. It's particularly nasty. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even really want to look back and see what the original was. It was so much harder. And, you know, John was like, no, let's cut it. And Beth was kind of, you know, bummed out about that because she felt exactly as you're describing right now. Like, it's really hard. I'm hearing it for the first time. The way it fits in with the rest of the ensemble is really weird. Um, man, I wish I had a chance to make it sound good before, you know, the composer decided that it was toast. The thing I don't want to do is to write a piece that hurts a performer. And, um, you know, there are pieces of music that are dangerous. John was sending me little snippets of, like, violin solos and saying, like, is this doable? And, and I would, you know, circle little passages and say, eh, this might not be so awesome. <laughs> so there was a, a small amount of back and forth just to make sure some parts worked out. <laughs> Great. The first movement of Son of Chamber Symphony really all comes out of the Scherzo Beethoven 9 Symphony. So there's Beethoven. And right off the bat, we've got bassoon and bass clarinet together. This kind of blew my mind the first time we played it because I was like, okay, yeah. The weird viola part going on. <laughs> it's fabulous. D octaves. I get this groove. This is going to be easy. I'm grooving with Mickey. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> There are the violins barking like dogs. <laughs> You're asking for it, man. Soft kilter, so it sounds like it's wrong. Just so mean. We've separated now. And then all of a sudden, my groove shifts, and we are apart from each other. So you have kind of a more interesting composite rhythm. The short little pecky notes don't line up in the same place anymore. And you have to listen very carefully to figure out whether you're the hit or whether you're in the hole. You're always afraid you're going to be the one to step in the hole. And it's a very delicate balance. You don't want to be that person. It's less about organizing a chaos of ideas and more about making all of the tiles fit together in just the right way. Because you have all of these rhythmic figures that have to lock in with each other just perfectly, and it's incredibly hard to make that happen. The first movement is very much governed by a series of kind of musical gestures or tropes, the, the dropping octave that has slightly suggests to some people that Beethoven's ninth it's so primal, it's simply a dropped octave, long, short, long. Yep. Bum, 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 bum. You know, Beethoven owns that. And yet, he shouldn't. Because it's so primal, it's, you know, it's like a very simple atom, like hydrogen or helium or something. So much can be made of it. There's a moment in the middle of the movement where he transforms the motive a bit, and instead of being... Um, Da, da, da. It becomes da, da, da. all these different groups of players playing da, 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 da. but in weird, surprising, not quite what you expect them to be rhythms. It's like eight or nine bars of music, and making those bars fit together properly is incredibly hard. And like there, there's like a million little rests that I've circled because they're just <laughs> like literal. It's a it's a total minefield. Yeah. <laughs> Like, there's a million places to, like, fall into a hole and break the whole thing. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) 
I think the second movement, especially with our players, makes me feel really happy. <laughs> such a pretty sound, such a beautiful, warm, haunting and hollow thing. I get chills hearing this. The second movement begins with this really long melodic solo that starts in the flute and clarinet. Nice lyrical melody over the top. It's just crazy how gorgeous it is. I like a pizza. Adams likes to tinker, <laughs> and there was a big change he made to the second movement after we played it a few times. So in this melody, this sort of unfurling, constantly evolving melody, part coming up. as it grows, as it evolves, the flute gets super high. It goes very high in the flute line. That was a high C. You know, that's not easy. That's really, really high. And so that's where John had tried putting it on piccolo. The flute switching to piccolo. And so he rewrote that melody in the second movement. And what he ended up doing was having that part taken over by oboe and then have the flute switch to piccolo and come back in on piccolo and take it over again. Um, that seems pretty pragmatic. It's super pragmatic. We never liked that version as much uh, because... Actually doing the switches back and forth between instruments and something like this, I think, makes it a little harder to get into the, the flow of it. And there's something really beautiful about having the flute just gradually and inexorably get up to this high place. So um, with Adams's permission, we've kept playing the, the now unauthorized 2007 version of the second movement. I think composers tend to be intimidated because we've had so many train wrecks. So we, we tend to err on the side of being too conservative. And uh, it's, it's good to be around a really gung-ho player who, who prods you and challenges you and says, you know, try it. I'll find a way to do this. It's so weird. This subtle distinction between the score of a piece that you've inherited versus one which was written for you. For the vast majority of classical music, the score is text. It's immutable. The hard stuff in the score is there as a challenge that you must meet, for better or worse. When a piece is written for you, there's a more subtle kind of dance. You become a part of the compositional process. Things are fluid and flexible and can be changed to suit the strengths and weaknesses of the ensemble. And this presents a kind of weird ego dilemma. You want to be able to play the hard thing, even if the hard thing doesn't serve the piece and its legacy in the best way possible. So sometimes the changes stay and sometimes they're tossed away, but to some extent, anyway, as long as a composer is alive, a piece can be a breathing document. It's alive. And sometimes it's alive. a piece can even evolve, shifting slightly from one type of instrumentation to another, which is what happened in the case of the third movement of Son of Chamber Symphony. So for the third movement of Son of Chamber Symphony, Adams looked to a piece he had just written as a birthday piece for Peter Sellers, who was his longtime collaborator on his operas. This little tiny five-minute long string quartet. 
that harkens back to the musical world of Nixon and China, which Adams had created with Peter Sellers like 20 years earlier. So Chamber Symphony in the early 90s was turning away from that musical world. Nixon and China very much lives in this world of bright day glow colors. Clear tonality, pulsing chords, roots in American minimalism. That was the world of John Adams in the early 1980s. Then with the third movement of Sunday Chamber Symphony, he really is looking back to his harmonic world of the 1980s, which is much more tonal and much more minimalistic. I love that in the last movement of Chamber Symphony, he actually quoted Schoenberg, so he right. looked back to the original Schoenberg, and in the last movement of Son of Chamber Symphony, he kind of quoted himself, like he sort of went back to um, his roots in that way. Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. It's the fastest movement. It's super energetic, caffeinated, and the whole thing is over this really simple, like, never stopping bass line, which is this bum 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 this minor third, which just happens forever. And that drives the piece. I actually really love playing the piece. I think it's really fun. It's kind of an effervescent, bubbly, happy piece. Um, it's challenging, but I think in a good way. It forces me to sit down and practice and relearn the licks. No matter how many times I practice it, they're always hard. Um, but it's, it's just really fun to play. So yeah, for all that this piece was insanely intimidating at first, especially getting the parts just a couple days before the first rehearsal, we really know this piece now. Like, we've put hundreds of hours into this piece. We waited a long time before recording the piece. And I'm so glad that we did, because it's the kind of music where if you have to work at it, it sounds wrong. And I remember, like, that first movement, for the first, like, ten performances, it took so much concentration to make all of those pieces fit together just right. It's music that when you're working really hard at making it fit together, it just has the wrong feel to it. And what was really a joy about recording it when we recorded it is we waited until it became easy. This episode of Meet the Composer was produced by Nadia Sorota and Alex Overington, with help from Mead Bernard, Hannes Brown, Carol Ann Chung, and John Hanrahan. Our executive producer is Alex Ambrose. Thanks to all our expert guests, Alan Pearson, John Adams, members of Alarm Will Sound, and Walter Frisch, and to New Music USA 
for their flexibility with the use of Meet the Composer name, which became famous through their legacy organization founded by composer John Duffy. Many thanks to our Season 3 Kickstarter supporters, including Joe Holt, Alex Ambrose, Lee Moore Tomer, Kevin Dolan, and Peter Morris. Ta-ta for now. <laughs> <laughs> oh,